So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right, and I'll conclude with a prayer that my student taught me. Well, I have different kids start off the day with a prayer. And the other day he said, Lord, make us holy and smart. But mostly make us holy because who cares if you're smart if you're a jerk? <laughs> Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so I was... the. I, I did feel I ought to teach you how to do a little bit of fighting, at least Benedictine style. Um, and um, like I said, the Benedictine way of fighting is to listen. But um, when you get in a fight or an argument or you're called upon to defend the faith, you have to ask yourself, I tell the kids, you have to ask yourself before you start, what is the purpose of this discussion? Because as far as I can tell, there are about four different things you, things you can decide. You can be in it to win, in which case all bets are off. You can hit them if you have to. Um, you, you can, whatever. And, and there's scriptural support in this. In John 8, Jesus, remember, he, the woman caught in adultery is brought to him. And he doesn't bother arguing with him. He just starts writing in the sand. And what's he writing? Who cares? It doesn't matter. The point is, he, got, he had to save this woman's life. And he did what it took. Uh, so you, you may be in a situation where you just have to win, in which case, do whatever you need to do. <laughs> um, but then the second purpose of the discussion may be to convert, in which case, rhetoric makes a great option in this case, or a sermon. Um, or logic, uh, Acts 17, St. Paul on the Areopagus, he uses flattery to convert the Greeks. He says, look, you guys are the wisest people in the world. You're so wise, you built a temple to the unknown God. And now I know who he is, so here he is. And of course, it totally wins them over because the Athenians are very proud people. Of course, then he starts in on the second coming or the, the resurrection of the dead, and they all say, eh, forget it, never mind. Well, or actually, better than that, they say, tell us more about this later, which means they're never coming back. Um, number three, though, and this is what I'm hoping most discussions will end with, is to arrive at the truth. Is that the purpose of the discussion? In which case... You ask questions, and then you listen to answers, and then you ask more questions. And we have several passages. Jesus was big on this. Mark 12, the scribe says, which is the first of all the commandments? And Jesus says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the scribe says, listens, and he says, hmm, okay, well said. <laughs> That's where you're right. That's worth more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus says, well, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And I just think that's wonderful because he and the scribes did not tend to get along. But for once, they listened to each other. And I, it's interesting that the passage ends with, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. But then again, on Matthew 21, he said the chief priests approach him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And he answers with, where was John's baptism from? Was it heavenly or human? And the priests say, well, okay, they have a huddle. They say, if we say heavenly origin, they'll say to us, why didn't you believe him? 
If we say human origin, he'll say, um, we're afraid of what the crowd will do. So they just turn to him and they say, well, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I don't have an answer for you either. Right? Um, but the, the key is, and I tell my, that you're getting a sort of mini apologetics class. I teach apologetics to seniors in our school. But I tell them the, the important thing is to be kind, K-I-N-D. First of all, you should, you should know something about what you're talking about. <laughs> it's amazing how often I get in arguments about things I just don't know anything about. Like the Pacamama. I don't know what a Pacamama is, but I'll fight. I'll be like, oh, you should have never done wrong. If, but if you know the answer, if you know what you're talking about, don't give it all away just uh, right off the bat. Uh, try to get them to say it. I, I read a book in, well, in preparation for my class by a hostage negotiator who said um, that he, he knew he was going to get the hostages out alive when he could get the other guy to say, that's right. If the, if the other person said, you're right, that just means he's trying to shut you up. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. But if he says that's right, then you're on the same side. Um, so it's much better if you can get the other person to make your point for you, in which case you're gonna need to be inquisitive. So knowledgeable, inquisitive. There's a hole in the argument somewhere, especially if it's not Catholic. <laughs> um, so you just have to find the hole in their argument. And the best way to do that is by asking questions. But be nice is the third part, which you probably don't need to know, but my students definitely do. Because there's so much, uh, they've learned to argue by, by surfing the internet. And pretty much every discussion in my class for the first week ends with, that's stupid, you're an idiot, or something along those lines. Um, we have to resist the urge to fight back. So you have to be K-I-N and then D. Knowledgeable, inquisitive, nice, and deferential. So admit the possibility, even if it's Catholic truth, admit the theoretical possibility that you could be wrong. All right? And you don't want to be so open-minded that your brain falls out, right? And you don't want to be open to evil. But we want, you know, I gave... I received an award a couple of years ago from a pro-life group. I don't know, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I am pro-life, but I don't know why they gave me the award. Because at the end of it, I said, okay, here's your homework assignment, and you're not gonna like it. <laughs> but I want you to go home, get on the internet, go on Planned Parenthood's website, and find something you agree with. Yeah, and I, that's the reaction I got, yeah. Um, but, but, but my point being that we want them on our website and we want them to, and the next time you get in a fight with somebody, you say, you know, funny thing is, I was on your website the other day and I thought this was really great. You know, and it's a way to, because nobody, nobody thinks they're evil or very few people do, a few sociopaths perhaps, but, but most people think they're doing the right thing. And if you can find that connection, I think you can make a lot more progress. Um, but the interesting thing is that by using this, uh, this um, process, you can actually guarantee you will never lose an argument. Um, and I feel like I, I ought to find somebody who, who I want to pick on you. Okay, so we're going to have an argument. 
Yeah, uh, Laura, is it Laura? No, not the person you're pointing at, you, yes, good. Okay, so, well, you seem pretty smart. So, um, but here's the thing, it's gonna be super easy. We're gonna get in an argument about a topic of your choice, and I will prove to you, like within three minutes, that you don't know what you're talking about, okay? So, so choose wisely. Choose something that's so obvious any idiot ought to be able to, sorry, I didn't mean to look at you when I said that. Any idiot ought to be able to know this. So like, I mean, like, I don't know, blue is a color. I mean, any, you, you make a statement that you absolutely know beyond, and that any, any idiot ought to know to be true. Just make it and I'll disagree with you. I should have picked somebody dumber. Good. Okay. All right. So the sun. Okay. So the sun is in the sky. You're telling me that the sun is in the sky. Is that that's what you said, right? Okay. And how do you know that? Because I see it. Excellent. Okay. So if you see something, that makes it absolutely true. Correct. Okay, good. Yeah, well, I guess you can stop there. Um, yeah, the, the, the cool thing is about this, uh, the, the, the process works like this. You, somebody makes a statement you disagree with. You repeat their statement so you can make sure you got it right, and then you ask a question. And then you repeat until they contradict themselves. Super easy. It's also super annoying if you don't... It's called the Socratic method, and they poisoned Socrates because they were so annoyed by him. But, but it works. I, um, I was in, um, let's see, I'm trying to decide. Okay, well, no, bro, our brother Sixtus was out buying sandals for one of the old guys, and he ran into this fundamentalist at the shoe store and brought him back for dinner, and he had dinner with the monks, and afterwards we were talking, and... And, uh, and he said to me, well, the problem I have with you Catholics is that your life is so unbiblical. Okay, yeah, right, a heck of a thing to say in a monastery to a monk. Um, but which, and slightly insulting too, but, but remember that you're supposed to be deferential. If he says I'm unbiblical, I have to say, really? So I said, gosh, that, I find that very, disheartening because I like to think that I've given my whole life to the Bible and to what it represents and to the person behind it. Um, how, how is it that you've discovered this about me? And he said, well, on our way in, someone called you father, for example. And automatically now I know exactly where he's going with this, right? We all, half of you probably do. If you're from the South, you, you know, you've heard it before. I said, yes. Brother Simeon called me father when I walked in your right. And? And he said, well, and it specifically says in the Gospels, let no man call you father. And I said, boy, wow, you're right. It does say that. And he did call me father. And that does, you're right, that contradicts the Bible. I was like, now tell me though, just, okay, just to get clarify things here. 
how do you refer to your genetic predecessor, your male genetic predecessor? He said, who? I was like, the guy who, you know, impregnated your mom. And he goes, my father? And I go, ah! And, and of course, immediately the guy goes, well, no, no, no. What, what, what my, I can, you can call your genetic father father because he's just participating in the fatherhood of God. At which point I said, oh, great. Well, that's what I'm doing. Right? So he made my point for me. I could go on, but I think I won't. Um, the, the, that's, that, so I, I highly recommend the, the Socratic method when it comes to defending the faith because I, ha, half the time, the problem, uh, or, or half the time when you hear people arguing, they, they, this phrase keeps coming up, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. But if you keep repeating back to them exactly what they're saying, they at least can't, commit, can't accuse you of that. And, and so they can say, well, what if you're both using the Socratic method? <laughs> then I say, well, then you're both listening to each other. So that's a step in the right direction. I, um, I promised to tell somebody about my experience with Umar Lee. Um, this, uh, a couple of summers ago, I, is this in my... Was I, plan I don't think I was planning to talk about this with anybody. Oh, yeah, I did. Okay, well, let's, let's start. Um, I'll skip Eucharistic. Well, I'll get back to Eucharistic, ordin or, uh, Eucharistic ordination. Eucharistic observation? Eucharistic adoration. <laughs> it's already, uh, I'm already behind. Um, so we're, okay, so we're at the second level of monkhood. Mona a monastery, monasticism 201. And we're going to talk about obedience. Uh, first of all, there's obedience to God, right? And that means, among other things, what I tell the kids, the three M's. You, you get, you're going to be martyred. If you take Christianity seriously, someone will make you feel bad for it. Um, years ago, they used to hang, draw, and quarter people. Although, what, uh, 10 years ago, three monks were shot dead at Conception Abbey, so... It's not that hard, and that, that's, that's here in, Saint, in Missouri. So it's not hard to imagine that real martyrdom might take place. I think it was Thomas Carlyle who said, um, if Jesus were to come today, we wouldn't bother to crucify him. We'd, uh, hear what he had, we'd invite him over for dinner, hear what he had to say, and laugh at it. Right? So I think, I think these days we're more likely to get martyred by being laughed at. Um, but I tell the kids, so I tell the kids, there, the, the, once you're confirmed, you have three M's that are your uh, obligations. Martyrdom, uh, mass every Sunday for the rest of your life, unless you're sick, or traveling by ox cart. <laughs> because let's face it, these days you can get to mass, okay? I actually, I took a homiletics class at, uh, at the seminary back, this was 26 years ago, and the professor was horrible. And so I decided to raise as much trouble as I could. And I preached on Balaam, the prophet Balaam, who couldn't get his donkey to move because he was going the wrong direction. I was like, if you have to do it, I was like, whatever way you need, get your ass to mass. <laughs> and, I, and I said, say it after me, everybody, because I've been listening. I, I didn't think he had much to teach me, to be honest, and I, I still don't. 
But I spend a lot of time listening to black Southern Baptist preachers, and those guys, man, they can preach, and they always got something that rhymes in the middle there. So it's like, get your ass to mass, get your ass to mass. He was like, that's the last time that'll ever be said in my class. He said, get your ass to class, then get to mass. He didn't think that was funny either. I made a C. Um, Okay, so Mass every Sunday, martyrdom, and then you all have to join the monastery is the last one. But really, M could be anything vocation-wise, molecular physicist, marriage, mother, whatever. But once you're confirmed, you know all three. I have a, a, to plagiarize another one of my students, a computer nerd. You will find this hard to believe, but they're nerds at Priory. Um, but he, I was trying to explain to them the sacrament of conf, uh, confirmation, which is really difficult because nobody, like almost, no, in fact, I don't think anybody really knows what it does. <laughs> you, baptism is very clear, Eucharist very clear, confession very, very clear. But this kid came up to me and he said, it's basically an upgrade. I'm like, he said, well, you, when you're born, you get the hardware, and baptism gives you the operating system, right? Like, yeah, and like, he's like, well, confirmation upgrades the operating system. Doesn't look any different, doesn't feel any different, but it's got that extra power you need when, when you need it, right? It has, it has more power now to do the newer things that it's capable of. That was really cool, and then I was like, well, what's the Eucharist? He goes, the internet. <laughs> Infinitely expands your capacity while connecting you with everybody else. I'm like, not bad. Ordination, he goes, web server. <laughs> I was like, Marriage, he goes, external hard drive. <laughs> I was like, all right, sacrament of the sick. And he said, when you finally have to take it into the shop, may come back, may not. Either way, it can't hurt. Right. I thought it was very clever. Um, so like, that's authority, obedience to God. Obedience to authority is, is um, more difficult, uh, or at least it gets more difficult as I get older. Um, the thing is that even the best intentions can go horribly wrong when they're not done in obedience. Uh, on the beach patrol, right before I joined, I, I spent a couple. Of, I spent eight years working on the Galveston Beach Patrol as a lifeguard. We worked for the sheriff's department, and the beaches in Galveston were the most dangerous beaches in the world, aside from one in in, in Hawaii and several in California. Um, and we had a kid drown off the end of the 61st Street Pier. He fell off the end of the pier. And uh, the lifeguard was running down the pier trying to the end to jump in when he saw his dad taking off his clothes. And he was like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Well, I don't blame the dad for what he did, jumping in after him, because, you know, it's just instinct at that point. I think he, he wouldn't be able to live with himself if he didn't. But he, pulled, he did manage to get his son and pull him to shore by the hair, which would have been all right, except the kid broke his neck when he hit the water. Yeah. Now, there's no, there's, I mean, uh, well, anyway, it was just a story that they told us as, as young lifeguards to say, look, there's a reason why we have these rules in place. You know, wait, if it says wait for your supervisor, wait for your supervisor. If it says walk, don't run, walk don't run. Like, if, if when, when somebody yells, I've got it, they've got it. Um, on a lighter note, I learned this in the, in the novitiate about 
three weeks into my junior year, my, well, when, I, when I joined the monastery the very first year, I decided I was never going to have another lustful thought. Yeah, which was about as yeah, successful as you can imagine. So I put it off till my junior year, because I, I thought, well, I don't have any vows, but the vows will give me strength, right? Because I don't have any choice, really. Um, but it didn't really work there either. But I was reading the, the life of St. Francis, and it turned out that when he was challenged with, with cha by chastity, he threw himself into a rose bush. And, and so I figured, well, I've tried everything else. Um, if it worked for St. Francis, yeah, right. You can see where this is going. Because um, it turned out Brother Simeon had a rose garden behind the monastery. And so I, I got up and walked out to the rose garden and looked around, made sure no one was watching, and wrapped my scapula around my waist and jumped in. Yeah, I know. Well, really, I was about, it was one of those moments where time slows down where you kind of say, no. And, and, I, and I just all of a sudden, like three things suddenly like clicked for me. Yeah, thank you. One was that St. Francis threw himself into a wild rose bush, which has very tiny thorns. But cultivated roses have huge <laughs> flipping thorns. And, uh, and I realized that on my way down. I, then, I also realized suddenly that Francis took his clothes off before he jumped in, which, which doesn't sound like a good idea until you're in the rose bush. Because every, I suddenly realized once I hit that I wasn't ever going to get out. Because every time I moved, I got another thorn in the clothing. And, and then the third thing I realized after a few minutes was, was that St. Francis was a saint, okay? And, and I'm just Augustine, and so whereas it was a really great idea for him, it was pretty stupid for me. And, um, and so the way I used to tell the story, I said I was three hours in the room. I don't think it was three hours, but it sure felt like that before my novice master walked by. Um, yeah, and, I, and like he walked by, he went, Ah. I was like, well, a little help. No, but he came back a few minutes later with the rest of the community. And they all had a good laugh. And they pulled me out of the rose bush and, and gave me a new habit because I ruined the habit they gave me. Um, and the, while I was picking the thorns out, uh, the novice master sat me down and he said, look, Augustine, I admire your pursuit of holiness. Like you're, do, you're in this, I can tell. But um, before you attempt any further feats of asceticism, just check in with me. Yeah, because we've all been there. I was like, in the rose bush? He's like, no. But he said, you know, we've all done stupid things thinking it was the right thing to do. And it was a fantastic, it was the, one of the best pieces of advice I've never really followed because then I started black fast, and I gave myself ulcers, and it went on and on. I'm still, well, anyway. Um, I, I haven't mentioned this before in a talk, but uh, several times now I've been asked, like, 
by young religious, how do you stay faithful? Like, how do you stay? Because a lot of us leave. I mean, there are I mean, a lot of young monks, nuns, priests just leave in vows. And they're like, how do you stay? <laughs> and it occurred to me that uh, in spite of my worst efforts, that I've stayed because I never kept a secret from my superiors. I've done a lot of crap, bad things, and, I, and, and I'm half-hearted and I'm late for stuff and I don't, and I skip prayers and whatever, but I tell my superiors everything to the point where it's annoying, um, but it saved my vocation more than once. That said, there's some things that like a husband or a wife does not need to know, right? Um, but you should tell someone, a confessor probably, or a spiritual director. But there's got to be someone to, with whom you share. And I also say, whenever I go to confession, I think of the one thing I really don't want to say, and that's the first thing out of my mouth. Um, so that's my secret. <laughs> secret to just being here. Um, so there's obedience to God, obedience to authority, obedience to your neighbor, which um, this is in my humility book, but when my sister uh, got married, she asked me to give the toast at her wedding. And honestly, like I kind of figured I'd left that behind when I took vows. Like I don't have a dog in that fight. I don't care about you know that, that stuff. I, I'm just not interested. So I didn't really have much to say. And I did what I always do now whenever I don't have, when I need advice, really, is I went to one of the old monks, his Father Luke, who was sitting in his chair looking out the window. Actually, no, he was asleep. And um, I said, uh, Father Luke, I need some advice. And he said, yes. And I said, I'm supposed to give the toast at my sister's wedding. What should I say? And he said, oh, ah, well, you tell her that the day will come when she will want the window open and he will want the window closed. And then he went back to sleep. <laughs> and I, I, real, I had no idea what he meant. Um, but, but, I, but I didn't have anything else to say. So when the I stood up, I said, Brent, Kristen, the day will come when one of you want the window, want the window closed. I sat down and everybody applauded and thought I, thought I was very wise and Neil came up to me afterwards. I remember because someone, one of his brother-in-law, his brother, I'm his brother-in-law, his brother said, uh, what does that mean? And I said, Andrew, no man can give another man's path meaning. Like, you must live your head. Like, you know, it sounded monkish, you know, figured. Um, and it was so successful that pretty much any time I didn't have a homily, I would just say that. And uh, until one week, one said, I, once a month, I say mass for the missionaries of charity, who are the world's greatest women. They're, they're like little bulldozers. They, you have to be like three feet tall to be a missionary charity. And you got, and you'll have to talk like this. Even the, the Americans who join them end up three feet tall talking like this. We had, a, there was an Oxford educated, anyway. So I, I was saying mass one Saturday and sister, um, they'll have great names like Mark Bruno or something. Sister, I know her first name was Mark. 
But anyway, Sister Mark was singing the reading, and it was um, the reading about um, Jacob and Esau, and how Jacob put the fur on his arms to make himself look like Esau. And, uh, and she said, and uh, who is their dad? Jacob, Esau. Isaac, Isaac said to him, you are Esau, my firstborn. I was like, what is she saying? You are Esau, my firstborn. I thought, you are Esau, my fuzzball? <laughs> like, it makes sense in theory, but I'm pretty sure that's not what he told him. And I got so wrapped up in this. Of course, she was saying firstborn, but her Indian accent kind of covered it up. By the time it came time for me to preach, I was like, I totally forgot what I was going to say. So I said, sisters, the day will come. <laughs> and they all, you know, they all sit on the floor and they all went, yes, Father. <laughs> and then I went back to my chair and I stood up again. I'm like, because you can't lie to a nun. You know, I was like, look, sisters, I have no idea what that means. It's just something I say whenever I got nothing else to say. And afterwards, Sister Mark came up to me and she said, I know what you meant. And I, I won't try to tell the story in her accent because it's insulting enough. But she said to me, um, she was assigned to a convent in the Amazon. And there were seven nuns living in this little, like, six-foot-by-six-foot metal shack with one window and one door. And there was only one, and there was one nun among them who was from that area, from Brazil, I think, south in Brazil. At Brazil. Wait, we have some Brazilians. It's hot in Brazil sometimes. Anyway, she, uh, it, the, is the Amazon anywhere near Brazil? Good. All right, then get my... Anyway, the point was, they had this nun from Brazil who would come in every night and shut the window and shut the door and go to bed. And she said, for, for five years, we prayed for that she would be transferred. <laughs> and because every night, they'd get into bed, they'd just settle down, and she would come and close the window and the door. And then they'd steam like, like little Indian dumplings all night long, <laughs> praying that, that mother would, would transfer her. And then, and then after five years, their prayers were answered, and she was transferred. And it was just the six of them. And they, she said, and we, we opened the window, and we opened the door. She said, we had the most lovely night. She said, all night we had a cross breeze, and we woke up the next morning with snakes in our beds. <laughs> right? And I said, so your point is? And, and she said, the point is, we should have just asked. <laughs> like, Five years, we assumed she was a jerk. Well, she didn't say jerk, but she said, five years, we assumed she was just thoughtless, when if we had just asked, right? And it turns out, I, I like to read psychology books. If you want to ask, seem really smart, there's an uh, a term they use. They call this the fundamental attribution error. Big words. Um, but what it means is that, like, I attribute, when you do something shady, is I attribute it to a flaw in your personality. When I do something shady, it's because of the circumstances, right? If I cut in line at the grocery store, I'm sure they'll all understand because I've had a horrible day and the fire may be on under the soup. And besides that, I've, I, I left the car unlocked and I'm sure they'll understand. But if someone cuts in front of me, it's because they're a jerk, right? But, but if, if, you know, you don't know that they're a jerk until you, you can say, excuse me, did you, are you in a rush? Are you having an emergency? And if they say, no, I'm just a jerk, 
And you go, oh, okay. Because people, you know, that, that's, I heard a talk once by a priest who said, forgive, make excuses for the people around you. And I thought, no, there are times when I want the people around me to be insulted. Like, I don't want someone to make excuses on my behalf, but I do want them to ask, right? Um, oh, I, I, there's some comedian who's, uh, another way of looking at this is when you're driving down the highway, everybody you pass is a moron. Everybody who passes you is a maniac. But you alone have figured the exact right speed to drive, right? Anyway, that's the fundamental attribution error. And, and it's what, what, well, here, pop quiz, since I'm a teacher, pop quiz. Uh, what is it that St. Benedict forbids his monks above all other things? What's the worst thing a monk can do? Go. Yep. Well, that's a pretty good answer, actually. You should ask the question back, but that's fine. Now, anybody want to give it a guess? The Brazilians don't get to answer because I think they've heard this before. Besides that, they have a Brazilian answers anyway. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, grum. Oh, yeah. Ooh, okay, well, yeah. Yes and yes. <laughs> Good, not bad. I, yeah, I should have picked a worse, uh, uh, should have picked a dumber group to work on. Um, yeah, to grumble, which is putting something before God, right? Putting your own opinion before God's. Yeah, and the more I talk about this, well, actually, no, the longer I live in community, the longer I realize that nothing Nothing will tear apart a group of friends like that cowardly, backstabbing, there's just no other word than bitching, okay? That's what it is, that right? And, or a business, or, or a family, I just, one sister calls, or one brother calls the other brother complaining about the third brother, and the, it's, a, it's, he would rather, Semitic would rather have us beat each other up than, than grumble. Uh, and the longer I'm a monk, the more I realize how, how true that is. Um, the solution, of course, is to apologize. Um, but St. Benedict has a very interesting way of doing that. He says, when, when you discern that your brother is angry, you don't wait to see who's right. Because <laughs> come on. I, the, if I waited till I decided I was wrong to apologize, I'd just never apologize, because I'm never wrong. <laughs> and, but what St. Benedict says to do, and, and I do this all the time, I do it so much that it's begun to annoy the brethren. He says, you throw yourself on your face and you beg for a blessing. Yes, who, who, yes. And it really, really works. I've, the, and and I've, I've been kind of trying to figure out why a lot for a while now that every time I do it, I get forgiven. And, and notice I didn't even ask for forgiveness, right? I mean, I, you, don't have to, you don't have to ask for forgiveness. You don't have to be sorry. You don't have to look sorry. You don't even, I, it's actually asking for something extra, right? I, um, what was it? When did I most recently use it? I... 
Well, the most famous incident now, or infamous at Priory, is that I told a joke at an assembly in front of the whole school, which, by the way, I still don't think is offensive. I'll tell, well, yeah, I'll tell it to you later. But <laughs> I told this joke, everybody laughed, and then afterwards, this one female faculty member came up to me, and it wasn't a misogynistic joke, I promise. Um, she comes up and she says, well, I found that really offensive. And, and I was just confused more than anything. So I just hit my knees. And I was on my knees and I said, oh, may I have your blessing? And St. Benedict says you don't get up unless you get the blessing. So I just knelt there and I waited and I waited and I waited and I finally looked up and she's, she's standing like this. She goes, well, I was wrong. It's like the fastest I've ever won an argument. Um, in fact, not too long ago I got, because I do a lot of these like Sikh conferences and things, and I got a, a, a or no, this is a high school kid because he, he had, well anyway, the, the thing is he wrote me an email, which I then deleted, and I wish I didn't, because I'd love to be able to read his exact words. But I tell the kids about this, and I say, look, the next, one of you is gonna be in trouble by the end of the weekend. Right? I mean, statistically speaking, it's going to happen. So when that happens, try this. And then tell me what, how it went over. And so on Sunday night, I get this email from this kid. He says, I took my parents' car without asking. And I totaled it. And the police drove me home. <laughs> he says, and when I got home, my parents were waiting for me, both of them sitting on the couch. He's like, so he said, I did like you said. He said, like, I, in fact, he said, I slid into home. Like, and, and he said, I said, Father, Mom, Dad, can I have your blessing? He says, and my dad got really embarrassed and left the room, and my mom started crying, and I totally got out of it. <laughs> um, and I, I think the reason why it's so effective is because people aren't really, really angry unless they think you've taken something from them, like some dignity. Um, and, and, and by making yourself physically vulnerable in their presence, that, that complete, you, you restore some of the dignity you've taken. I also read somewhere that your brain, when you're confronted with a physically helpless person, your brain releases oxytocin, which just makes you want to be nice to them. So it's kind of a reverse form of bullying, really. Um, so, that's, that, so that's obedience to your, to your neighbor. But then most importantly, or not most importantly, but as importantly, there's obedience to your enemies. And this is, this is where the, bi the business of, um, you know, well, let's see, what time is it? One, four, yeah, I think I'll just tell this from memory rather than use the actual talk. But um, a couple of summers ago, some of you will remember that there was a big controversy in Forest Park uh, that the Black Lives Matter the group kind of got worked up over the statue of St. Louis. And his fellow Umar Lee decided that uh, it needed to come down, that he was a, let me see if I can get this, Islamophobic, homophobic, anti-Semitic, genocidal tyrant, and there's no place for having that in, in Forest Park. And, um, and so he had, there's a big, thing, big hoo-ha around the, the, the statue, and some people got beat up, and there were some people fighting. A friend of mine named Father Schumacher put on a, a pretty good show that day. I think he did us proud. 
Um, but um, so I decided that I needed to be there, right? Now, St. Benedict says when it comes to fights, that you never, never, never intercede. You never get involved in someone else's argument. And uh, St. Justin Martyr says it's like grabbing a wild dog by the ears, whatever that means. Um, but St. Benedict says, like, even if you're related to the other person, you do not get involved in someone else's argument. So um, the thing is, I had already sort of gotten involved with Black Lives Matter because when the first protests happened in Ferguson, I drove down there looking for it. I didn't ask permission. I just, I just thought a monk needed to be there praying. And to tell you something about how the news reports things, the, the, the front of the New York Times read, St. Louis on fire. So I got in my car just expecting to follow the glow, um, but I wasn't able to find them, the riots. I knew Ferguson, I knew where it was, but I drove around and around and never found the riots. So this time I was gonna make it right. Um, and so I asked the abbot and he said, you can go, but if things get confrontational, you have to step out. And um, so, so I did, I went, and when I arrived, um, it, there was about, I don't know, 1,500 Catholics and as many Black Lives Matter protesters, and it was pretty confrontational. Um, granted, I, you know, more power to us. I think Catholics have a tendency to roll over when we get picked on, but this time we didn't. And in fact, some guy came up to me and was like, Father, things go down, I got you covered. He was packing a pistol. I was like, whoa, <laughs> hold on now. I mean, again, I'm a little proud of us for sticking up for ourselves, but that wasn't my game, right? I had about 300 copies of the Prayer for Peace, St. Francis's Prayer. And I was just going to pray them, right? Um, incidentally, I left a little note on my pillow. It said, if anything happens to me, I did it for Jesus, you know. <laughs> I had these, I, they're pictures of Umar Lee online holding a scimitar. I was like, well, this guy's tough. Um, so anyway, I got there, and of course, yeah, it was, it was pretty confrontational and pretty rough. And so I started to back, I backed up. I just sort of backed out of the center of things. And I kept backing up and backing up until pretty soon the rosary was over and, and I looked around and, uh, and I was with the Black Lives Matter people. <laughs> like, um, in fact, I had ended up with all the Satanists because they were all wearing black and I guess instinctively I, I felt like I fit in with them. Um, and, and I kind of sort of came out of my little prayer days and looked around. There's this kid with tattoos all up and down his arms, dreadlocks, and he's standing next to me looking at me, and I go, uh, I go, you're not, you're not here to pray the rosary, are you? <laughs> and, and he says to me, no. Are you one of those religious people? And I was like, well, you going to judge me just because I go out in a hoodie? I can't be seen. I'm like, Luckily, he thought that was funny, and so we started talking, and I said, well, what, why, what, what really bothers you about the statue anyway? And he was like, well, the I don't care about the statue, just Umar said there are white supremacists here. He's like, I wanted to resist that. And I was like, well, I ain't noble enough, but I mean, really? And he said, are there any racists in the group? I was like, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's Missouri, you know. Um, <laughs> 
but 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 I said, you know, this this Umar Lee character, he's bad. Like I've, uh, he's a he's a violent, evil man, right? And he goes, well, you can ask him yourself. He's sitting on your right. I was like, oh crud. <laughs> I kind of looked over and he's standing there, big fella with beard and the prayer cap and everything. He looks over at me. He goes, how you doing? I was like. Figured I had nothing to lose, so I said, Mr. Lee, I've heard you are a violent, evil man. And he says, where'd you hear that? And I go, the internet? <laughs> and he's, and I said, but then I thought, I said, well, you know, in all justice to myself, um, I, I, you were on the news. He goes, oh, and the news is real fair to Catholics. It's like, <laughs> all, right, all right, so now you had the moral high ground. So I was like, well, all right, you know, and so we got to talking and pretty soon we got to exchanging numbers and, and uh, I mean, it turns out like, well, I don't agree with him on, on the whole St. Louis thing, but he, he wasn't quite the villain I had imagined him to be. And, and by the time we were done talking, like, it was just me and all these protesters, right? And, and no Catholics left. And I was like, well, I gotta go. <laughs> like, I said, but I'll pray for you. He goes, oh no, we're good. let's get this started with a prayer here. You, you, you start off the protest with the prayer for us. And I was like, are you kidding? Like if the abbot sees this, he's like, ah, abbot's not gonna see anything. He hands you, the, hands you a bottle of ice water and a megaphone. I'm thinking, man, <laughs> If I'm, and I was on the news that night, <laughs> leading the protest at the, at the statue. The, the, uh, the janitors come in the next morning, they're like, Father Gustin, sticking it to the man. Um, and I was like, but I don't agree with anything you're saying. He's like, that's okay. We can pray, can't we? I was like, yeah. You know, so, so I said to him, I said, look, I don't agree with, I, of anything that's going on here, like I'm a monk, and when people start tearing down religious statues, monks get scared because we're usually the next to go. And but, but you know, Jesus did say that anyone who gives one of his followers just a cup of cold water uh, will not lose their reward in heaven. And I was like, and and Mr. Lee just literally did exactly that. So. You know, and so I pulled out my prayers to St. Francis, and the Muslims were like, oh yeah, that's cool, we know him, he, he visited the Sultan, you know. And we all said it, we all said the prayer of St. Francis together. Um, and uh, in fact, well, yeah, we had coffee the next week, Umar and I, and then he started emailing me with questions about Catholicism, and I started emailing him with, and pretty soon we, we decided we, we needed to have a podcast which just had its 18th episode. I can play the music. I can play. I designed the music for it. Um, let's see if I can get this going. Uh, I combined Ramadan music with Gregorian chant. I got. I'm really. <laughs> here we go. Anyway, so uh, yeah, we called it disagreement, but the irony is like, we have trouble disagreeing about stuff. Um, 
And I, I, would say, I would say, well, it's, the whole movement has been taken over by LGBT. He's like, oh yeah. He's like, that's just an excuse for white people to get in on the oppression. I'm like, <laughs> like, I agree with that. Like, I, you know, and, he's, and, then, and he was like, but come on, like, celibacy isn't natural. I'm like, well, polygamy isn't natural. He's like, it's, it, he's like in this country, it ought to be. He's like, and I was like, okay, I'm, you're with me on that one. Like, like um, in fact, uh, I'm so far off topic at this point. <laughs> but he and I, he, he went to it for our season finale. He went to a Catholic mass. And you're going to love this because he came back and he says, all right, you guys think that's Jesus up there, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, no. I mean, like, actually Jesus. I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, I mean incarnate the creator of the cosmos on the altar physically. I'm like, yes. And by the way, you're like the top 30% of Catholics right now, theologically. And he goes, how come you don't dress up for that? <laughs> I was like, good point. Like, and he's like, well, okay, while we're at it, he's like, who is the priest sacrificing to anyway? Because in the mosque, we all face the same direction. I'm like, Oh my God, Umar, you just became a traditionalist Catholic. <laughs> He's like, well, isn't it your tradition that you have this sacred language? Because we only play, pray in Arabic. I was like, oh no. I'm like, you just became a Tridentine, ad orientum conservative. Anyway, uh, so that's, that's Umar. And, but, but okay, the point being <laughs> that um, you know, instead of going looking for a fight, I went looking for answers. And, and he and I started talking, and, I, and he really listened to me, which I, I appreciate. And I really listened to him. He just, in, in fact, um, well, yeah. So I think part of the way to deal with your enemies is to listen to them as well, uh, which is how, which is why, interestingly, a friend of mine at Oxford did her doctoral thesis on on family histories of monks in medieval England, right? And interestingly, like, something like two, by the end of the Viking invasions, two-thirds of the monks have Viking names, which means, like, they showed up and were converted, right, and became monks. Like, in the movies, they're always killing the monks, but apparently it works the other way around sometimes. Um, well, okay, then I want to talk about the future. <laughs> and how silly that is. Um, in my most recent book, I, I pay a lot of attention to the Desert Fathers, and my favorite story is of St. Anthony the Great, the very first monk, and he says, Abba Antony was worried about God's judgment, and he prayed, saying, Lord, why is life so unfair? Some die young and others old, some are poor and others are rich, but most importantly, why are evil people so well off while good people wind up oppressed by poverty? And a voice came to him saying, Antony, God knows what he's doing. Mind your own business. <laughs> um, in 2005, uh, Philip Tetlock, who's a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania, he completed a 20-year study on predictions, okay? He interviewed 284 people, talking heads from television, who made their living, quote, commenting or offering advice on political and economic trends. 
He asked them to assess the probabilities that certain events would occur in the not too distant future, 10 years or less, uh, in areas in the, uh, of the world in which they specialized, but also in things that they didn't know very well. Um, would, say, Gorbachev be ousted in a coup? Or would the United States go to war in the Persian Gulf? Or which country would uh, be the next big emerging market? Uh, so he gathered in all 80,000 predictions. Uh, respondents were asked to rate the probabilities of future events on an outcome of one of three things, either, either likely to happen, not likely to happen, or they couldn't tell. And here's a quote from his study. The results were devastating. The experts performed worse than they would have if they had simply assigned equal probabilities to each of the three potential outcomes. In other words, people who spend their time, who earn a living studying a particular topic, produce poorer predictions than a dart-throwing monkey who would, who would distribute his choices equally, at least. Even in the region they knew best, these experts were not significantly better than non-specialists. Um, now, the reason I, I think this is so important is because, like, I spent the last several years making my own predictions about what was going to happen, when a vaccine would be found, uh, what would happen if so-and-so got elected, or, or whether or not we get a Supreme Court justice, or where the next riot would break out, or what would happen if my darn theology students didn't start turning in their homework. But the fact is, none of this ever has or will or could, none of this makes me feel better. But, but I keep doing it for some reason because, well, because in these uncertain times, uh, making confident predictions about the future calms me, right? Admittedly, the calm doesn't last long, because um, I know deep down that human predictions are about as, as dependable as dart-throwing monkeys, uh, and probably more dangerous. Um, which brings me to the next little quote from the Desert Fathers, which is, a brother asked Abba Antony, what am I to do? I'm a terrible monk. I eat too much, I sleep too much, I drink too much. I am plagued by evil thoughts. The elder said to him, you do very little well, but you do it in Jesus' name. Now go back to yourself. Uh, you may find this hard to believe, but I've written a book on decision making now, and so I'm an expert on that as well. And <laughs> actually, the funny thing was, I, uh, when I started writing the book, I, people were like, well, what's the title going to be? And I was like, well, I was thinking about how you doon, because that would be really cool with the saying and everything. But that thing that sounds a little cute. So then I think like maybe like something like pray and act. But then I think and then like everybody in the audience started laughing at me. I was like, "What?" And they're like, "You can't decide what to call it." Like seriously. So apparently those who can't do teach. But interestingly, in the end, the people who may who are who are, who I have found to be the happiest, holiest, most decisive, good people aren't the people who make the best decisions. They're the people who make the best of the decisions they've already made, right? Um, on a purely material level, this is why, when it comes to really weighty matters, we sign contracts, right? I, I set a wedding the other day, and I don't do many because I have this little uh, 
boilerplate response. Whenever someone asks me to marry him, I say, congratulations and thank you. I don't bet on a losing horse. So let's stop living together, stop sleeping together, stop, you know, agree to buy by the, se the sexual deed. Then I never hear from him again. Um, but I, but, but um, every now and then one of them comes through and this one did. And I said to him, I said, look, uh, actually I married, <laughs> it's funny because Aiden, Aiden's best man, they're both alumni of the school, Aiden's best man was August. And I said, Charlotte, do you take August to be your husband? And she goes, no. <laughs> and I was like, what? Oh, oh shoot, I mean Aiden, you take Aiden to me. Uh, at that point I said, look, here's the thing. The day is gonna come when you're gonna wish you had married Aiden. <laughs> but, but that's why you're taking the vow now, right? Because precisely because one of you is gonna want out. If, if, if everybody stayed together perfectly happy with their spouse their whole life, they wouldn't need to take vows. It wouldn't need to be a sacrament. But the point is like, uh, they, well, okay. Yeah, the, oh, I'm so far off topic. Um, so in, in researching this book, one of the, thing, one of the people I, I ended up paying a lot of attention to is this atheist computer programmer philosopher. Because it turns out that like getting a computer to make a decision is even harder than getting a person to make a decision. Because if you say compile enough information, the computer will go on forever. Compiling, you can never have enough information to make an informed decision. And then he got to thinking about his own wife and how he made that decision. He's like, it was totally illogical. Like I should have dated way more people before I married her. And they started to work the statistics like out of the 4.5 billion people in the world, what are the odds that I would happen to run into the perfect match? Like none, like zero, like, le like it's almost infinite over one. Um, but and, he said, and then what are the odds that I will, after marrying someone, find someone better? They're actually really good, right? And yet, interestingly, he said, and the funny thing was, he looked around, and there are all these happily married people. So how'd that happen? Like, like statistically, it should be, no one should be happy. <laughs> and, and he said, well, in the end, it's just about committing to someone. Like you, he said, uh, and, and I think about like, when I, I, we aren't allowed out to eat very often in the monastery, so that's a big decision when I go out to eat as like, uh, so, or like and so, so I'll spend like 10 minutes agonizing, is it the lobster or the steak, the lobster, steak, lobster, steak? If I say, okay, lobster. And then as soon as the origin, I think, duh, I should have had the steak. And I'll spend the whole meal thinking about the steak. And that's just, that's a recipe for unhappiness. Um, so, when it uh, uh, so when it comes to like, holy happy people aren't the ones who make the right decisions. I mean, really, there's no way to make a good decision because someone's gonna mess it up for you, right? Probably you. And, and, and but if you commit, I mean, to a certain extent, because you don't want to, well, yeah, the, the, read the book. The point is that, yeah, that's what makes you happy and holy. Okay, uh, you got, ultimately, you got to leave it in God's hands. Um, I think, what, 
Thank you. <laughs> um, oh, okay, how much time do I have left? Am I done? Because I wanted to say something about Eucharistic adoration uh, and about obedience in that respect. Okay, and that, that'll be done, that'll be done, okay. Um, because I was asked to give, a, I never really thought about it, and then the, the, there are these wonderful Dominicans up in Nashville who asked me to give a, a, a retreat on the Eucharist. And, and I thought, and I told them, initially I told them no, and they said, you don't like the Eucharist? And I was like, well, no, it's just that, like you're asking me to talk about like the, like air, like, uh, it's the Eucharist. It's just everything. Like, how can you talk about that? Like, it's. Um, but I got to thinking about it, and then, um, well, the truth is, especially when it comes. So I, I decided to narrow it down to adoration. And the truth is, like, I do a lot of things just because that's what we do at church. And, and this is one of them. Uh, and frankly, there's nothing wrong with doing things just because the church says so, right? If it's good enough for Mother Teresa and John Paul II, it's good enough for me, okay? That's all the explanation I really need, but that doesn't make for much of a sermon. So I did a little research, and um, at first glance, it really does seem like an odd thing to do, to sit in silence and stare at a piece of bread. But we Catholics, we believe the Blessed Sacrament actually is Jesus. Like Umar says, is the incarnate creator of the cosmos on the altar. So you're not just looking at a piece of bread, you're looking at someone who is looking back at you. It's a relationship. I, you know, I, it does seem odd, but yeah, when, I was, I, when I was at Oxford, I was in the same dorm as a kid named Georgie Romanoff. Um, and yes, he was one of those Romanovs. Uh, if Russia still had a czar, Georgie would have been it. Um, but on July 17, 1918, Tsar Nicholas II, his great-grandfather's brother, um, and his whole family were martyred, and the remaining Romanovs were kicked out of Russia. But then in 1981, the entire family was canonized as martyrs, which meant that Georgie was a walking relic, right? First, first class relic at that. Um, so as a party trick, I used to bless people with him. He would jump up and squat down and I'd say, Benedict, God brought so many potent days. Um, so, so it isn't entirely unfamiliar to us, this idea that you could look at a holy thing that is a person. Um, but still, it, it demands an explanation. So I looked up this uh, Eucharistic adoration, whoops, I just, I was playing with my fonts again. Uh, so, uh, so, so I looked up in the Catholic Encyclopedia, the definition of, uh, of, of Eucharistic adoration. It says that there are four reasons for adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Number one, it excites pious emotions and affections. Number two, it has the power of freeing us from attacks by evil spirits. Sounds good to me. Number three, it preserves and restores bodily health. And four, it effects various other benefits, which is not helpful if you ask me. So 
Um, so I found 24 reasons on the Catholic News Agency website. But let me put it this way. When you look at the Eucharist, you are looking directly at God. And I tell the kids, and I'll tell you, that as a priest and a monk, if the Eucharist isn't exactly what the church says it is, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, if it isn't literally Jesus Christ up here in the flesh, then there is no God. Okay? Um, in the 1970s and 80s, the physicist John Wheeler, he helped to uh, coin the term black hole. He became a leading proponent of a theory of the universe called the Big Crunch. Uh, astronomers think that, I'll be done in just a second, whoever, Jesus, stop. Okay. Um, astronomers think that the expansion of a closed universe will eventually slow down until it reaches a maximum size. That's all right, whatever. Uh, then it will recoil, collapsing back on itself. And as the universe retracts, as it does, the universe will become denser and hotter until it ends in an infinitely hot, infinitely dense singularity, he calls it. Well, the Eucharist is that singularity. It's the origin, substance, meaning. It's the end of my universe. But the thing is, how do I convince myself of this? Um, well, I believe that the Eucharist is the solution to, the, to every illness our society is suffering from. And, and I believe it so much, I bet my life on it. My, my, I have this great friend, uh, I, I always quote in sermons, Father Patrick Nokoye. I took him to his first American grocery store uh, when we were in seminary together. And as he came around one of the corners, he, he froze, he grabbed my shoulder and he said, Brother Augustine, this whole row, this is all food for your dogs. <laughs> he, he couldn't get out. He's like, the whole row is food for your dogs. And it, it, I mean, I don't think the problem is, you know, I just, well, in these uncertain times, I think it's important to remind ourselves how stupid it is to talk about these uncertain times. When have the times ever been certain? I, you know, when, when this whole COVID thing hit, I called up my friend Patrick Nwakoye. He goes, oh, you Americans and your COVID. He goes, in Nigeria, we just say, another plague. We get on with our lives, right? It, it, we, it, at Priory, we always have these leadership camps. And, and Father Patrick was busy. He's like, well, what, what happened to all the followers? He's like, that's the problem with America. You got too many leaders. Um, I think we've become so accustomed to being in control of our lives that the arrival of this disease just totally threw us for, through a loop. But the solution, I think, is in the paradox of the Eucharist. It's the one thing we can control, all right? I mean, right? Jesus, God, gave man this power over him. And yet, it's also, the, it's also infinitely beyond our control. It's inconceivable. On the one hand, God 
in his humility, gives himself to man, right? This is what St. Francis had to say. He said, O sublime humility, O humble sublimity, the Lord of the universe, God, the Son of God, so humbles himself that he hides himself for our salvation in an ordinary piece of bread. Or this from Mother Teresa. She said, when Jesus came into the world, he loved it so much that he gave his life for it. He wanted to satisfy our hunger for God. And what did he do? He made himself the bread of life. He became small, fragile, and defenseless for us. A bit of bread could be so small that even a baby can chew it. Even a dying person can eat it. Or, or on the other hand, it can be frustratingly or infuriatingly incomprehensible, right? This is, take this from uh, Richard Dawkins, who used to be, well, still is one of my favorite authors, though not real fond of Christians. Um, he, religion, he said, makes specific claims about the universe which need to be substantiated and need to be challenged. He said this at his speech at the Reason Rally in Washington, D.C., he said, they need to be challenged, and if necessary, they need to be ridiculed with contempt. For example, if they say they're Catholic, do you really believe that when a priest blesses a wafer, it turns into the body of Christ? Are you seriously telling me you believe that? Are you seriously saying that wine turns into human blood? If the answer is yes, mock them ridicule them in public. <laughs> or this from his bestseller, The God Delusion. He wrote, I am thrilled to be alive at a time when humanity is pushing against the limit, limits of understanding. Even better, he said, we may find, eventually discover, that there are no limits to human understanding. Well, the world in general, but Richard Dawkins in particular, wants us to believe that our powers are without limits. And every time they bump up against a limit, they're, they're, it's unbearably distressing. Uh, the Eucharist is infuriating to men like Dawkins. Well, well, it was infuriating. He's dead now, God help him. Because in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, we cannot avoid confronting the limits of human reason. We are forced to focus on the limits of our humanity. And the irony is that in consuming it, we are infused with divinity. St. Augustine said that it was the only food that consumed us as we ate it. Um, what's, how much time do I have? None? I'm done? Okay. I'm going to leave us there. I have a few more things to say about various things, but... Uh, can't, can't do better than St. Augustine, so let's stop there. In the name of the Father, uh, uh, let's see. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear God, give us the grace to accept what we cannot know or understand or comprehend and, and, and the faith to embrace it when necessary and the charity to abide with those who don't. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Saint Drogo, patron of ugly people, pray for us. It's a real saint.
Don't laugh. 